0: growing up as a kid, I couldn't wait to get older, uh, really for three reasons. I wanted to be able to stay up as late as I wanted to, right? No bedtime, no one telling me when to go to bed. Secondly, I wanted to be able to eat whatever I wanted to eat. (laughs) And then third, I wanted to be able to watch Whatever I wanted to watch. I We grew up in a home where my parents were pretty strict about what we watched. I was probably a, uh, almost a teenager before I realized there was even more shows on TV besides Little House on the Prairie. I mean, that was pretty much all I was allowed to watch growing up. And so I couldn't wait to grow up to do those things. And now that I'm grown, grown up, uh, you know what I've learned? Like, I don't want to stay up anymore. I want to go to bed as quickly as possible. You know, the other night I was in bed at 9:30. Like, and I was super excited about it. Super super happy about that. And now that I can eat anything I want, it's great, but I have to pay for it. So that's not so great either. And now that I can watch anything I want, the problem is is I have three little girls, and so you know what I end up watching all the time kids movies. Like that's most of the time that's that's what I'm watching. And every now and then we get lucky though and there's a, there's a kids film that I love to and recently, there was a film that came out, it was a sequel to Wreck-It Ralph, and it was the second Wreck-It Ralph movie, I don't know if you've seen it, Ralph breaks or wrecks the internet, and uh, I loved it, I just, I think it's so funny, I think it's so clever, and uh, it just does a really interesting job of showing the internet from a different perspective. And I love this one scene, I want to share it with you in just a second, I love this one scene where, you know how on uh, search engines like Google, they try to guess what you're searching for? It's called autofill. I love how Wreck-It Ralph shows this in the movie. Check this scene out real quick. His autofill was a tad aggressive. You know, um, if you type in the phrase into Google, what happens when, do you know what the top result is? What happens when you die? That's the number one thing. What happens when you die? By the way, the second one is, what happens when you block someone on Facebook? So... (laughs) I don't know. Stop blocking me on Facebook if that was you searching for that. But what happens when you die? And it's interesting that so many people are searching and asking that question that Google has identified it as one of the most important questions out there. What happens when you die? And I think the question beneath that question is, how should I live my life, right? If I know what happens when I die, then it should make a difference in the way which I live my life. And this morning, we're continuing our series through the Gospel of Luke, and we find ourselves in Luke chapter 16, and we're going to read a story that is only recorded in Luke. Matthew, Mark, John, they don't have this. This is, this is exclusive to the Gospel of Luke. And in this story, we learn about two men who are very different from each other, And we see how they lived and then we see how they died and then we see how it affected how they lived forever. So let's read this together. We're gonna kind of go a couple verses at a time and I wanna point out some things that were different about these two people, okay? We're in verse 19 of Luke chapter 16. I'm reading to you from the ESV. It's on your handout there. Uh, It's also on the screens behind me. Jesus tells a story and he says this. There was a rich man, who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Let's pause for a second. Look how differently they lived. This rich man, he was clothed in purple. That's important. Purple was not a fashion statement back then. Purple was a status statement because purple was very expensive. In fact, the way that they would make cloth purple was they would get it from a dye that was secreted from a very rare and expensive sea snail called a murex. And as I was studying and I learned, there were two ways that they would get the dye out of this snail. They would either kill it to get the dye or, and this is true, this is what it said in the commentaries I read, they would milk it. They would milk the sea snail. And of course, immediately I thought of Ben Stiller and Meet the Parents. Maybe he's right, you can milk anything. But they would, they would milk the sea snail to get the dye out, and they would make this purple dye. And it was so expensive because it was so hard to get. It was so rare. In fact, back then, the rabbis would have a prayer shawl. And in order for the prayer shawl to be like a legitimate prayer shawl, it had to have one thread of purple uh, cloth. Just one, and that made it legitimate. That's how expensive it was that they could only afford to ask the rabbis to have just one thread of purple cloth. And this rich man had a whole robe made out of purple, he was really wealthy. And also, did you notice that his undergarments, he wore fine linen. This would have been imported from Egypt. This also would have been really expensive. That means he had really fancy underpants. I mean, he was so wealthy that that he he could spend money on things that nobody could even see. This is the way this guy, this guy had so much money, he didn't even know what to do with it. He was buying stuff. And he wore it, not just sometimes, not just on special occasions. You know, we all have maybe nicer outfits that we wear to weddings or on special occasions. But it indicates in this text that he wore it every single day. This guy was so rich, and he feasted, I love the the adverb here, it's a great adverb, isn't it? He feasted sumptuously. Anybody wanna feast sumptuously for lunch today, after church, he feasted sumptuously, which means every day he ate whatever he wanted. He was at the Chinese buffet, he was at Golden Corral, just like whatever he wanted, eating it all. And then we see Lazarus. Lazarus is uh, at this man's gate, which meant this man had a large estate, large enough to be gated, and they would come and they would, it says that they would lay Lazarus at his gate. And what that means is Lazarus couldn't get there himself. There was something wrong with Lazarus. He was, he was lame or there was some issue and he was laid there. And actually the Greek verb there for he, that he was laid there is not that he was gently laid there. It was almost like he was tossed. Because to many people in society, Lazarus was trash. He was rubbish. And so they would just kind of throw him at the man's gates. He was starving, he, 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 did, he wasn't feasting sumptuously. He just was saying, I just want the crumbs off this man's table. He was covered with sores. And I know, it isn't a little gross that the dogs would come and lick his sores? And these are not like, many of you have dogs and they're cute dogs and they come and they lick your face and it's really sweet, you know? Um, but these were not those sort of dogs. These would have been street dogs, scavengers, who would just come up to him and he couldn't fight them off and they would kind of in a gross way feed off his sores. So here's a man who can't get food, and the dogs, the street dogs, are feeding off of him, and he can't even get any food. I mean, he's in a pretty bad situation. And what's sort of ironic and maybe sad is that the name Lazarus actually means God helps me. So his whole life, every time someone called him by his name, it was like mocking him. Lazarus, well, where's my help? Here I am, I'm poor, I'm, I've been thrown at this man's gate every day so I can beg for money, I'm covered in sores. So we have very different lives here. We have the rich man, In the lap of luxury, we have Lazarus, homeless and impoverished. Now, it is important to note that the rich man is not evil because he has money, and Lazarus is not righteous because he was poor, right? Poverty does not get you into heaven, and wealth does not keep you from heaven. That's not the point of this story. Let's keep reading. Verse 22, it says, The poor man died, Lazarus died, and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and he was buried. So not only did they live differently, they died differently. Did you notice the biggest difference between the rich man and Lazarus? Only one of them was what? Buried. Only one of them was buried. The rich man was buried, which meant he would have had a large funeral and people would have gathered together and they would have told stories about him and they would have honored him and they would have eulogized him and they would have celebrated him and they would have spent a lot of money on whatever the burial te- burial techniques were so that he would have a proper burial. But Lazarus wasn't buried. Lazarus, just was carried by the angels, right? He wasn't buried. And what's interesting is that in this time, in this culture, at this point in history, to not be buried was almost worse than dying. It was a big deal to not be buried. In fact, you remember in the Old Testament, the story of David and Goliath, where uh, they're, they're, they're running towards each other and they're kind of smack talking, trash talking each other. Both of them say the same thing to each other. Essentially, I'm gonna kill you and I'm gonna feed your body, What? to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the fields. Now, why would they both say that? They both said that because that was a big deal back then. You didn't want your body to be devoured that way. You wanted to be buried. That was that important. But this man was so poor, he wasn't buried. There was no eulogies, no honor, no grief, no celebration. He died the way he lived, overlooked, forgotten, ignored, and alone. Now, let's look at how differently they lived forever. Let's keep reading. And said that the rich man or the poor man was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man was die, died and was buried. Verse twenty three. And in Hades, being in torment, they're speaking of the rich man now. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, "Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame." But Abraham said, "Child." Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in his in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And the rich man says... Well, then I beg you, Father, to send to my father's house, for I have five brothers. He had five brothers who were still on earth, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, meaning they had the the law, they had the Old Testament. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced, even if someone should rise from the dead. Look how differently they lived forever. So the rich man is where? He's in Hades. The word Hades actually back then didn't necessarily mean hell. It was just an afterlife place. Actually, on its own, Hades didn't mean good or bad. But we know that this was bad because it says that this man was in torment. It talks about the flame. And the flame was really how the Jewish culture would have understood and articulated eternal punishment. Isn't it interesting that the rich man asks to receive from Lazarus what he never gave to Lazarus in his life, right? So it's like a total reversal of positions. Lazarus in his life is the beggar, and now who's begging? The rich man's in Hades, he's in torment, and he's begging, and he's asking, would you have mercy on me, despite the fact that for the entirety of his life, he never had mercy on Lazarus. And he knew Lazarus, by the way. He called him by name. He knew who he was. In, in, in the afterlife, he calls him by name. And the rich man here, what's interesting, too, is that even though he's now begging for mercy, his heart really hasn't changed because he still actually sees Lazarus as like an errand boy. Lazarus will do something for him. His sense of superiority actually still remains. Lazarus, do this for me. And the rich man also isn't really owning up to why he's there. He actually, by saying, if you would send somebody, then my brothers wouldn't come here. Here's what he's implying. If somebody had come to me and told me, I wouldn't be here either. And so when we read this story. We see the rich man is in a pretty bad spot, and he really hasn't changed at all. However, where's Lazarus? It says right in the text that Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom. It's kind of a weird term. Maybe we're not very familiar with it. But back then, when, when people would gather together for celebrations and for feast, the way in which they would sit at the tables is not like you and I. They wouldn't sit uh, straight up. They would be on more like benches and couches, and they would recline. And the person who was the guest of honor of the host would be closest to the host, seated on their right side. And they would, let, they, would, they would rest their head against that person's chest. They would be in their bosom. And that's where they would eat. So when it says Abraham's bosom, this, this, this picture is a place of feasting. Abraham invites Lazarus to come. And Lazarus, for his entire life, has been outside of the table. And now he's seated at the table with Abraham, resting against his bosom. How many of you are glad we don't eat that way anymore? Any of you bothered by loud chewers? That would be the worst, right? That would be the worst, to have somebody with a hollow head chewing away, resting on your bosom, and resting on your chest. But Lazarus here he's finally at the table after a lifetime. And again, we see the reversal, right? In life, the rich man's at the table, and Lazarus is the beggar. And in eternity, Lazarus is at the table, and the rich man is the beggar. And what I love about this is, Abraham says about Lazarus that he's receiving comfort. I love that vision of the afterlife. Not just reward, not just glory, not just gold, not just breathtaking scenes, but comfort. Then the afterlife, there actually will be comfort that we will receive. That's good news for us, isn't it? Because all of us carry through life pain and sorrow and questions and loss. And this beautiful picture here shows us receiving comfort. So these these two men, they lived differently, agreed. They died differently, and they lived forever differently. And by the end of the story, one thing is very, very clear. You don't want to be the rich man. You do not want to be the rich man. So what I want what I want to do with the remainder of our time, now that we've gone through this story, is I want to answer this question: What is the path of the rich man? How did he get where he was? And this is important for you and me because we may not realize that we're on the same path. We're on the path of the rich man and we don't want to be on that path. So what is the path of the rich man? I want to give you three things that that sort of signify the path, describe the path of the rich man. And you can fill this in in your notes if you're a note taker. But the first thing is this, if you're on the path of the rich man, you define for yourself what is quote unquote good. You define for yourself, you define what is good. You know, when we're when we're raising children and we're trying to teach them to do things the right way or trying to teach them to eat their vegetables, I often hear myself saying this to my three girls, it's good for you. You ever hear that? You ever say that, parents? It's good for you. Why do I have to take a bath? It's good for you. And for us too, by the way. But it's it's good for you. Why do I have to eat my vegetables? It's good for you. Why do I have to go to bed? Because it's good for you. Why do I have to study or practice? Because it's good for you. And I think actually, in a, in a sort of, un, um, uh, in sort of a way that we're not planning it out, we're actually putting in the, the heads of our children this thought of like, I don't want what's good for me, right? Because they're saying, you're saying it's good for me, but it doesn't seem good to me, right? I, I don't really enjoy it. And so we're kind of creating this little rebellion in their, in their hearts of saying, I don't want, I want to define what's good for me. You say broccoli is good for me, but you know what, M&Ms seem good to me. I like those instead. You say going to bed on time is good for me, but I think staying up and playing on my iPad all night is good for me. And as children, as they're they're growing up, they're always trying to define for themselves what is good, and we're saying, no, this is good for you, and that is good for you, and in their hearts are saying, I don't know if you know what's actually good for me. And it doesn't change as we get older. The scriptures say, this is good for you. Jesus' teachings indicate, this is good. This is good for you. And we say, I don't know if you know what's good for me. You're saying it's good for me, but it doesn't seem good to me. Well, what does good look like? Abraham says to uh, the rich man, he says in verse 25, look at this verse again. He says, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. Now that, that descriptive word there, received your good things, is really important. The word your. And here's what it means. Abraham's not saying that wealth is the good thing. He's saying, basically, you decided for yourself what was going to be good for you, and you went after it. That's what, that's what it means there. You defined good for yourself, and then you chased after it. And all of us do that. We all define what good is and what the good life looks like. What does the good life look like to you? Here, I wrote down some things. For some people, the good life looks like power, having influence, being able to control people, being able to make decisions for people. For some people, the good life looks like a life of respect—that I'm respected for what I do, and I'm respected for where I live, and I'm respected for who I know. Some people, the good life is control—I can control the outcome of my children's life. I can, I can control uh, this situation. I can control that. And when we lose that control, we feel the good life slipping away from us. Right? For other people, it's security. For some, it's success or pleasure, or fame, or, or for me, it's the 28th World Championship for the New York Yankees. Like, that's the good life. Like, I'm just waiting. I'm just, I'm waiting for it. Any amens? Are there any amens out there for that one? <laughs> when something becomes your greatest good, here's what it does. It has a way of rearranging all the other goods in your life. And there's different seasons of life where there's different things that we think are good, and it has a way of prioritizing everything else that we think is good. So when you're a kid, when you're a child, you know what's good to you? Playtime. You want to play. And so everything else comes under playing, right? Studying, uh, doing uh, your homework, um, you know, uh, resting, practicing your instrument because your greatest good is playing with your friends and playing with toys. And then as you get older and you're a teenager and you're in college, maybe your greatest good is is dating, dating someone else. And so that becomes the greatest priority for you. And every other thing kind of filters underneath that priority. And every decision you make is aligned by how will this help me accomplish this thing. And then when you become a young adult and maybe you have a family, now the greatest good is making money so that you can provide and so that you can secure things. And then as you get older, maybe the greatest good is saving money and setting it aside so that you can retire and you can live the good life. And so there's different seasons of life where there's different good things that we chase after. And whatever is your greatest good, that's exactly what you do. You chase after it. You obsess over it. You compromise to get it. You you judge other people who have a different definition of good than you and no one can tell you otherwise. And here's the real danger. Your greatest good becomes your God. Think about it. It has all of your attention. It has all of your affection. You make sacrifices for it, and you build your life on it. And here's what's so offensive about Jesus. Because, you know, when you first hear the story about Jesus, you're like, who couldn't like Jesus? Who couldn't love Jesus? He was a wonderful man. He loved children. He was kind. He told cool stories. He sounds like a great kindergarten teacher. Like This is like, who can't love Jesus? And then he did this for us, and he died on the cross. But you know what? When you really understand who Jesus is and what his life means for your life, it actually becomes a problem. And here's the great obstacle. Here's what's so offensive about Jesus, that when Jesus presents himself to you, he doesn't present himself as an add-on to what you think is good. And he doesn't present himself to you as access to what you think is good. He presents himself to you as a brand new good. I'm the good that your heart needs. I'm the greater good. And I'm not looking to be tacked on to what you think the good life looks like. And I'm not looking to be your buddy to get you to what you think the good life is. I'm here to be the good life for you. I am the greater good. And so many people actually, when they first start to consider Christianity, and they first come to Christ, they they hear these wonderful things about Jesus, and they say, that fits in very nicely with my life. That fits in very well with the other things that I want. So I will continue to chase all these things and Jesus. And that's not how it works. It's not Jesus plus these things. It's Jesus in place of these things. It doesn't mean you lose those things. It means that it reprioritizes those things, in such a way that they don't control you, they don't own you, you don't obsess about them, you don't give your greatest affections to them, you don't give all of your attention to them, because now you have a greater good. So he's he's not looking to be an add-on, but here's the other thing, Jesus is never looking to be a means to an end. And there are a lot of people who go to church who they serve Jesus because they think by serving Jesus, it's going to get them something that they want. If I serve Jesus, then I'll get the respect of, of other people. If I serve Jesus, it'll give me a platform for a ministry, for leadership, for influence. If I serve Jesus, then he won't let me suffer. He won't let my kids suffer. If I serve Jesus, then I'll have financial security. How many of you learned that serving Jesus and all of those things are, are not always synonymous? We serve Jesus, we follow Jesus, and we still suffer, and we still lose, and we still struggle. And when Jesus is just a means to an end, then you re- reduce Jesus from being beautiful to being useful. And now you're just using him to get what your heart really finds beautiful because you have a different good. But Jesus confronts us with saying, I am the greater good. In a world where the highest good are things like self-expression, self-idealization, self-actualization, the gospel is very offensive because you know what the gospel challenges you to do? It challenges you to stop looking to yourself and stop trusting in yourself to determine or to define what is truly good. You and I cannot define what's good. We look to God who has defined it for us. And foundational to the historical Christian worldview is this simple belief. You've heard it before, but this is foundational, that there is a righteous creator to whom we are accountable. People don't like that. Nobody likes accountability. No one wants to be accountable. Everybody wants to define for themselves what words mean. Our society wants to redefine everything. They want to define everything differently based on how they feel and based on what they think. And right at the heart of the Christian message is this. There is a creator who is righteous, who is holy, and we're accountable to him. And we answer to him. And people don't want that. But God comes to us as our creator and says, here's what's good for you. And he knows, right? Because he's the maker of all. And if you've been following Jesus for a while, and if you've been trying to grow in Jesus and he nothing that he has said nothing that you've read in scripture confronts you bothers you offends you then you're probably not really seeing him for who he is if you serve a god who agrees with everything you agree with if you serve a god who never confronts the way you live your life and the decisions you make then what you've done is inst- you've created god in your image you have what's called a stepford god you've made a god in your own image so that he can approve of all the things that you believe and think but god is our creator gets to define what is good for us but the rich man in this story he defined for himself what was good and what was good for him was wealth and whatever else came with wealth power and influence and control and so the first step on the path of the rich man is you define what is good the second thing is this after you define what is good you become what is good something very interesting in this parable This is the only parable that Jesus told, and he told a lot. This is the only parable that Jesus told that a character in the story has a name. No other parable does a character have a name. The poor man, the beggar, the lame man, his name is Lazarus. But most commentaries think that the point wasn't Lazarus. The point actually was to teach us something about the rich man. And it's this. In the story, Lazarus has a name, which means he has an identity, But the rich man doesn't have a name. He's always referred to as what? The rich man. And what it means is this. When something is your ultimate good, when you define your own good and then you chase after it, you will turn into that very thing. You become that thing. He was the rich man because he loved riches most. And he was never anything more than that. In Psalm 135, 18, the psalmist writes this. It says, those who make idols become like those idols. So do all who trust in them. Here's what the psalmist is saying. Your good or your God will become your source of identity. Whatever you define as good, that's what you become. That's what you tap into to get your sense of self and who you are. You may become that thing, yes. You may actually get that thing, but you'll never be more than that. Did you notice that he wasn't just the rich man here on earth? He was still the rich man into eternity. He never was more than the rich man. And he called out to Abraham, Father Abraham, which meant he was a a, a Jew, which should have been his identity, that he belonged to Abraham, that he was one of the people of God. But he forfeited that identity to become the rich man. And when you define what is your good, you will become what is your good. And you'll lose yourself in the pursuit of that thing. This man... He could have been so much more than just the rich man. He should have been so much more. He could have been the generous man. He could have been the kind man. He could have been the giving man. He could have been the gracious man. But no, who was he? He was the rich man because he defined his good and then he became his good. He could have been such a blessing to others. And can you imagine getting to the end of your life and realizing this is all I am. I'm just the power hungry person. I'm just, I'm, I'm just the rich person. I'm just the pleasure person. I, you could have done so much with your life to bless and lift up other people, but you made your whole life about the thing that you defined to be good, and then you became that thing. There's a documentary on Netflix called Chef's Table, and uh, each episode takes a close look at one of the greatest chefs in the world. And I was watching the latest season recently, and there was a chef named Ozma Khan Osma khan she has a restaurant in london called darjeeling express supposed to be one of the best restaurants in the world and she's indian she was she was born in a in calcutta and uh, she was actually born in a very uh, wealthy family she was born it was a lot of poverty in calcutta but but sh- that's not her story she was born in a well-to-do family and uh in fact she 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 talked about her dad one day taking her to their family castle i mean you're doing okay you're doing all right if you got family castle, you know. Uh, and, and this is a quote from the documentary. She said, one day my dad took me to my family's ancestral fortress. And he took me up one of the towers. And he pointed out the slums that were below. I mean, just in the shadow of the towers, just in the shadow of this castle were the slums. Just like Lazarus laid in the shadows of the rich man's house. And he said to Ozma, as he pointed to the slums, it's an accident of birth you could have been there or you could have been here. And he told me, use your life to make a difference because being in a position of privilege, you have a duty to lift others up. I love that. I don't, I don't necessarily agree with everything he said there because I don't necessarily think it's an accident of birth. I think the Christian worldview presents something different, but I love everything else he said. I, I love the idea that it is true. By God's grace, you are where you are. You're in the country that you're in, you're in the position that you're in. I know you may not feel like you're wealthy, many of you, but compared to most of the world, you're actually very, very wealthy. You're really quite you really are. And so we as Americans are in a position of great privilege. We really are. And so here he is saying to her, use it to make a difference. Use it to bless others. Use it to lift others up. And I love that imagery of using our lives to lift other people up. The, the, the unfortunate, the disadvantaged, the marginalized. How do we lift them up? But we're called to do this. And by implication in this story, this rich man, why did he end up in Hades? Why did he end up separated from God? Not because he had money. It's not money, not because he was wealthy. You can be wealthy and love and serve God. Wealth is not the problem. The problem was that he never used his advantages to lift others up. There was no generosity in his heart. There was no care. He wouldn't even give the crumbs of his table to this man, Lazarus, that he walked by every single day. And we're called to do this. We're called to use our lives, use our advantages, use our blessings to lift others up through generosity and through kind words. But listen, once something else becomes your good, and once it becomes your God, and once it becomes your identity, you will not let go of that thing to bless others. You won't. And this rich man defined the good things as wealth. He became it. He became the rich man. And then he wouldn't open up his hands. He had the means to help this man but he didn't. And like I said, he recognized Lazarus in the afterlife. He said, oh, I know him. He's the beggar. And he knew his name, Lazarus. And I bet Lazarus recognized him too and said, oh, I know who he is. He's the rich man. Because you become your good. And the last thing that I want to say this morning, our third point is this. You define what is good in quotes. You become what is quote unquote good. But then lastly, here's the path of the rich man. You lose what is truly good you lose what is truly good. So first, you define what's good. Secondly, you become what's good, but then lastly, you'll lose. This text teaches us that if you make something other than Jesus your greatest good, if you make something other than Jesus the pursuit of your life, then someday not only will you lose that thing, which you will, but you'll also lose what is truly good because where does the rich man end up? Separated from God. Separated from God. Now let me pause real quick and say this. This story, this is a story, right? This is a parable Jesus is not giving us a theological teaching on heaven and hell here. So we have to be careful what we do with this text. Jesus is not teaching us in detail, here's what heaven will be like, and here's what hell will be like. That's not the point of the story. He's just impressing something upon our hearts. There are some big picture truths that we can pull out of this story about the afterlife. Can I share four of them with you? Number one, how you live now impacts how you live then. Agreed? Number two, not everyone's gonna have the same afterlife. Number three, there is going to be an awareness in the afterlife of people we knew, of decisions we've made, of what brought us to where we're at. And then number four, there's going to be a place of comfort, but there's also going to be a place of torment. Now, what those places look like, I don't know. The scriptures give us some clues, but to some extent, we don't really know. It's still a mystery, but there are some things we know for sure, and it's those, those things. We learn this. And the rich man who his whole life chased after what he thought was good, at the end of his life, he doesn't bring any of his riches into Hades with him. And he's lost the one thing that's truly good. A relationship with God. And the story ends kind of abruptly. Verse 31, look at this verse. Abraham says to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. At this point in the gospel of Luke, this is the last week of Jesus' life. So he told this story days before he would go to the cross. What does the end of this story mean? What is it most supposed to make us think about? I think we know because of two clues. Let me share them with you. The first clue is this. In just a few days, Jesus himself would rise from the dead. He would rise from the dead. He would come back and he would declare the gospel of the kingdom to his people. But even to this day, you know, there are people who do not receive. So when Jesus says this, even if someone would rise from the dead, they still won't believe. He's speaking of his own resurrection from the dead. He knows that I'm going to go and bear the sin of the world. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to bear the shame. I'm going to give my life. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to rise from the grave on the third day, the victor over sin, over hell, over death. My followers are going to take this everywhere. And there's still going to be many people who don't believe, but I'm still going to do it. Even though I know my love is going to be rejected, even though my sacrifice is going not to be accepted by all, I'm still going to do it. And so that's our first clue as to what the end of this story means. Jesus himself knew someday, soon, I'm going to rise from the dead. Not everyone will believe though. But here's the other clue. The day that Jesus rose from the dead, that morning, he rises from the dead. The, the disciples and the woman find the tomb empty. And then later that day, Jesus is walking with two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they don't recognize Jesus. You know, when someone just died in front of you, the last thing you expect is to have them walking down the road with you. So they don't recognize him. They don't see him for who he is. And it says that as Jesus walked with the disciples, he began to open. And here's the phrase in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27, somewhere in there, it says this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Luke's a masterful historian and a masterful author, and he does this on purpose. He uses the exact same phrase here, in Moses and in the prophets. And when Jesus opens up the Old Testament to the disciples on the road to Mase, he's saying, everything you've heard, everything you've known, everything Moses talked about, all the priests, all the kings, all the prophets, they all were pointing to me. I'm the better priest I'm the greater prophet. I'm the true king. And all of the Old Testament is anticipating this day, this moment. And can you imagine, that was the day that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, and he's walking, and he finally gets to open up the Old Testament to them and say, it's all about me. It's all about me. And so when Abraham says to the rich man, even if someone came back from the dead knowing that Jesus would, and even if if they don't read and understand the Moses and the prophets, here's what what Abraham was saying to the rich man. Your brothers, they don't need Lazarus, they need Jesus. They don't need Lazarus to come back from the dead, they need Jesus to come back from the dead. Because ultimately, that's the only hope that we have, that Jesus is our greatest good. And the rich man was laid every day on the ground, outside of the gates, of this rich man's house where he would suffer. And just a few days after Jesus told this story, Jesus was led outside the gates of Jerusalem where he was laid on a cross where he would suffer for you and for me. Why? To take away our shame, to take away our sin, to take away all of our chasing after other things that we think are so good and to be lifted up on a cross to draw all men and women and children to him so that we could see and know not just in our heads, but in our hearts, that Jesus, he's the greatest good. When you make Jesus your greatest good, here's what it does. It sets you free to not be enslaved by all those other things. It really does. They're still good. Family, security, those things are still fine, but they're not your greatest good. They're not where you find your identity. So when Jesus is your greatest good, it sets you free. And when you make Jesus your greatest good, I'm gonna close with this thought. There's one way in which he's similar to everything else, and there's one way in which he's different from everything else. Let me explain. When you make Jesus your greatest good, you will become like him. Remember we said, whatever is your greatest good, you become like it? Same thing like, Same thing with Jesus. If you're struggling to grow and mature and become more like Jesus, make sure that you've made him your greatest good. In Corinthians, Paul says, as you behold Jesus, as you worship him, you become like him. It's in worshiping Jesus, it's in seeing Jesus, it's in adoring Jesus that we're changed. We're not changed just through our efforts and just through our self-determination and just through our self-help projects. That doesn't really change us. What really changes is self-denial and self-forgetfulness and looking away from ourselves and looking to Jesus and seeing who he is and becoming like him. So in that way, Jesus is like the other good things. When you look at him, you become like him. But in one way, he's very, very different from everything else. You can never lose him. When he's your greatest good, you can't lose him. Why? Because he's got you. He's holding on to you. My youngest daughter, Madeline, often when she wants to be picked up, she'll say this, Daddy, I have you? Or Daddy, I hold you? And it's really her way of saying, I'm going to hold you. Now, she's, she's a strong little girl, but she's not going to lift me. I mean, most of you couldn't lift me, but she's, she's definitely not going to lift me. She can't hold me. So what I do is I pick her up and I hold her. And then she wraps her arms around me and she says, I hold you, Daddy. I'm holding you. Now, who's holding who? Right? Who's holding who? And it's me holding her that allows her to even hold on to me. If I wasn't holding her, she couldn't hold me. Now, think about you and Jesus. Who's holding who? Sometimes you think, oh, I'm holding on so hard. I got so much internal determination and strength and effort. And I'm so spiritual and I'm so righteous. I'm holding on so tight. And Jesus is saying, "Hold on. I'm holding you. Relax. I'm holding. You. It's his hold on you that secures you. It's his hold on you that allows you to hold on to him." And so we hold on to Jesus knowing that he's our greatest good. Jonathan Edwards said this and I want to finish with this. He said in Jesus and because of Jesus this is true. Listen to this quote. Our bad things turn out for good. Our good things can never be lost. And the best things are yet to come. Is that amazing? Our bad things, your worst things, your worst day, your sorrow, your grief, the things that, that continue to weigh heavy on your heart, the things that continue to cause you to, 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 to weep and, and to have deep sorrow, our bad things someday in Jesus will turn out for good. Our good things can never be lost because we make Jesus our good thing. And the best, the very best is yet to come. Why? Why? because Jesus Christ is the greatest good. And we set our eyes, we set our hearts, we set our attention and our affection on him. Let's pray together this morning.